Welcome to the Watering Hole Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Riemann. The Watering Hole is a place to come and quench your thirst for meaning, nourish your hunger for inspiration, and feed your need for connection. Featuring inspirational talks, curious conversations, mystical meditations, and other artistic expressions exploring themes on life, spirituality, nature, mystery, and so much more. So meet me at the watering hole, and together, let's drink from deep waters. My partner in conversation today is my longtime friend and colleague, Mary Cummins-Wodarski. Over the years, our paths have crossed both professionally and personally. We've worked for the same institutions, taught at the same seminary, and we were both trained by and worked for the Poli Center for Supervision and Leadership. Mary is known among our circle of friends by the nickname Mary the Wise. She has a quick wit and a sharp mind. She's a semi-serious poker player. Professionally, she's worn many hats and played a variety of roles. She was trained in and developed expertise in the Myers-Briggs type indicator, which fosters greater understanding around personality types and styles of communication impacting both individuals and groups. And she's been a longtime theologian and teacher. She's been a spiritual director and a campus minister. And one of the things that I've always loved about you, Mary, is that you're you have a boots on the ground approach to being with people and tending community. Mary continues her work as adjunct faculty at the University of Dayton by assisting students who need help negotiating the demands of higher education. It is a joy and honor to have you today as my guest at the Watering Hall. Well, thank you. Thank you. So, you know, you are one of the people I would I would say in my life who is a pretty masterful conversationalist. And I kind of want to start there. I want to start there because I think we're in a time in our society, in our world, in our culture where we've maybe lost the art of conversation. You know, social media, I don't think is helping us. We there's there's more of a invitation to debate and kind of, you know, stand in one's own opinions as opposed to a conversation. So I wondered if you would just take a minute and in your own words, describe that process that we were trained in and, and why you found so much value in it, not only as a style or a method of supervision, but how you've brought it into your own life. Sure. I, I'd be glad to. I, I, I have to admit, I always smile when you say I'm a good conversationalist because I think, well, the trick is just, you know, talk enough. Something makes sense <laughs> as you go along. Um, but, yeah, the, um, the center was the Pastoral Supervision Center was the official name of it. And it, um, but it, what it was really built on was something called the narrative conversation. That was, that was really the heart of the program. And if you think of putting those two words together, that's, you know, it's a story. It's sharing your stories. It's conversing about your stories. And that's a lot of what it boils down to. Um, The the process is, uh, I remember we came, well, actually, we didn't come up with that. I forgot the name. Ed, somebody, good man. But anyway, um, 
Sorry, Ed, if you're out there, <laughs> I can't think of your last name. But um, he came up with the acronym I Eat Chocolate, I-E-A-T-C, for the, the steps of the program. I don't like chocolate, so I changed it to cheese when I got it. But, um, but I do think it, it's just very simple. It's information, evaluation, analysis, a theological reflection, which it, as we have learned, both you and I, um, that can be a much broader term than originally we thought it was. It right. could be meaningful reflection for anybody with any background. Right. And then the um, last one is commitment, the uh, C. So, and that sounds, oh, very, ooh, you know, ooh, psychological. But it really isn't. It just means first you find out what happened, make sure you have the details, then you help the you help the person who's sharing the story with who's talking to you um, to go into it as like, huh, you know, did I have other options? Did I, you know, evaluating it? What's the value of this? And the analysis, excuse me, the evaluation would be more of a heart sort of thing, not so much a head thing. So you look at that, like, how did I feel about this? What did I sense in the room? The analysis gets into the options. And did I have other options? Were there, were there things I could have done differently or things that maybe I didn't interpret correctly? Um, so it's basically, first you just share the information. You speak a little from the heart, you speak a little from the head. Then you reflect on what you just said. You know, huh. Because isn't it amazing once we say things out loud, whether we're introvert or extrovert, how it can surprise us. Right. We've said it out loud. Um, and then the last stage is what am I going to do about it? The commitment. So it's really not as complicated or high fluting as it sounds. Right. Uh, um, and, and like I said, you and I have seen it in action. The trick behind the conversation, and I was glad to hear you say this when you talked about, I don't think social media is helping, is the narrative conversation or or I would call it a meaningful conversation, a caring conversation, a compassionate conversation it has nothing to do with winning or losing. Right. Nothing at all. And I do think we have created a world where people listen to decide what they're going to respond. I agree. And therefore often you're only listening for what you agree or disagree with. Yeah. This kind of conversation is listening to understand, not to respond, to understand. Right. So, so actually, your first thing out of your mouth is generally not, well, I. The first thing out of your mouth is, tell me about that. Or, why do you feel that way? Or, why do you think that way? Yeah. Um, you sort of lead the person. I don't know if I even want to say the word lead, but you, but you certainly encourage the person to, to speak their truth and their story. And you sit back without judgment. Right. You know, um, and if they say something you don't agree with, you know, tough. <laughs> I don't understand. You know, really grow up. Put your big boy pants on, big girl pants on. Um, right. Because you're going to disagree with people. That's not the goal. The goal is try to understand what they're saying to you. Right. Now, you know, can you challenge people in this conversation? Absolutely. Happens all the time. Right. Um, as you also know, especially when we get to that meaningful part, that reflection part, 
yeah. where you do say things to people like, have you thought about why you feel that way? <laughs> you know, right, have right. you thought about um, how that affects other people or how that affects your relationships? And of course, with commitment too, you can do a lot of challenging with that. Like, what are you actually going to do? Now that sounds all very one-sided. And I actually, in the strictest form of narrative conversation, it is. You're, you're trying to work with someone who wants your help in figuring this out. But in, in life as it is lived, it's rarely one-sided. Right. It's, you might begin that way, but then someone will say right back to you, well, what are, what are you saying to me? What are, why would you ask me that? Um, do you have a, an, an agenda in this? Which is a fair, a fair question, fair to back and forth. The trick is just, like I said, it's not to win. Right. And the trick is, do we understand each other? Right. I think that's key. I think that's key. It's, it's, it's not even to be right. Oh, God, no. You know, it's not even to be right it, it, or to sort of stake your claim and in, in what you think. It's truly to be curious in a way that helps foster that person's. And this is what I love about this method that we were trained in is is that it relies on a sense of trust that the person has within them the wisdom to know how to proceed in the best way or the healthiest way for them. Yeah. Right. And so that's right. in the context that we were trained, of course, it was a method of supervision and it was, it was generally held with peers okay. who were in a group and one person presented a situation that they wanted help working through. But as you point out, I think that, that those, stages of the conversation can also be used much more loosely, of course, in everyday conversation. Uh, but there is an art to it. There is a stance, if you will, of, of being curious, of, of really wanting to understand where the other person's coming from. And, and in the formal settings that you've just described, Mary, which I think are incredibly valuable, but in the formal study, in the formal settings, you have a covenant first. Yeah. And in informal settings, um, I like to point out to people, you know, you don't have a written covenant in an informal setting, but like you and I, I mean, I love you. I trust you. I know you will never intentionally hurt me. I mean, good friends always hurt each other one way or another. It happens. Life goes on. But, but, you, but it won't be your intention. Right. And... And I think you know the same about me. Absolutely. So, so that's not a written covenant. You and I never sat down and said, well, here's our covenant of friendship. Yeah. But, but it, is, it is a way to live in a friendship. Yeah. And, and I think, um, yes, you get let down. I mean, not by you. You've been great. But <laughs> yes, sometimes people get let down in friendships. But I've always found it's better to take the position of common good even if you get let down once right. in a while. Right. That's still better than taking the sort of defensive position that I see so prevalent. Right. Like, I know you're out to catch me in a mistake. Right. I know you're out to catch me in an error. And therefore, 
I don't trust you. I mean, I think this is one of the the biggest inhibitors to authentic conversation today. You know, there's this this sense of people sort of waiting to be offended. And I feel that in some ways we've lost that social contract that we trust our, you know, our can trust each other not to be intentionally offensive or hurtful. And and it's it's happening even in our families, right? Like we sort of make an enemy out of say my parents, my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, who didn't vote for the same person I voted for, doesn't hold the same views I do about white privilege or what have you. And we, we inhibit conversation because now we've labeled them, you know, conservative, liberal, Bernie bro, you know, whatever. And, and it, it comes between us. Like it doesn't even allow for authentic flow to happen because we've got that image of who this person is, even though we've known them possibly our whole lives. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I think this conversation that we're having now and these conversations that we're talking about are so important because we've got to be willing to brave these conversations, in my opinion, even at home, even with our family members, you know, and, and the beauty of it is if, if we are willing to brave it, what I've found in my own experience is that there is connection. There can even be healing. You know, I I had a conversation, Amanda and I were at dinner with, with my dad and my stepmom. This was a couple years ago when things were you know, we were clearly on opposite political ends and we started to talk politics at dinner. And, you know, my stepmom wanted to tamp that conversation down. It was very clear that she had fear that it was going to ramp up and get hurtful. And we assured her wouldn't. And we continued our conversation. and, And you know what we came to at the end of the conversation was that none of us know None of us know the best way forward. None of us know how to bridge the gaps. None of us know, you know, how to address the big issues of poverty or privilege or any of those things. And that in itself was was healing. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, it, it, uh, to affirm that, I, I, I'm sure I've told you all this already, but all of you out there haven't heard. It. <laughs> so, um, so you get to hear it now. But the uh, my my oldest brother and I were were separated for a number of years, unfortunately, um, on and off, actually. But the last separation was probably about five years, six years. And um, and it was over politics. It was. Um, um, it was just stupid. I, I, I don't mean to say stupid like we got stupid, not the fight wasn't stupid. We both we both had dearly held values and beliefs, but that we forgot what we were about was stupid. And, um, and then he got diagnosed with cancer. And, um, uh, you know, so it was one of those, do I let this go or do I go and visit him? And I thought, well, I'm lucky enough to have a chance to do that. You know, some people die very suddenly and you never get to do this. So I, started going to see him and I've always loved him. And I, and I honestly believe he always loved me. I don't think that was ever the issue. 
Um, but we just had such opposing views. It was hard. And we would slip into being quite mean to each other <laughs> if we weren't careful. So um, I went. And what was different about this time was I wasn't listening to the words. I was listening to the emotions behind them. Mm. And so what I could hear behind a lot of his statements was fear, honestly, that the world had become a very awful place and dangerous place and that he needed to protect his family and protect his lifestyle. And there were lots and lots of enemies out there. And when I started thinking of, and I don't feel that way at all. Um, that was a lie. Of course, sometimes I feel that way. Right. I go in and out of it myself. Yeah. <laughs> but I try not to feel like right. it. And, um, and, uh, and the, so then I, I was able to talk to him not about these, these issues that were not at the center of us, mm-hmm. of our relationship, of our covenant. I could talk to him about the things that were. I could talk to him about our childhood. I talked to him um, very frankly. And at one point I said to him, Bill, I'm so sorry. Um, and I meant it. I'm so sorry. And he looked at me very quizzically and said, for what? And I said, well, for the years we've lost. Um, mm-hmm. That might tear up. But anyway, um, he said, no, no. Like, you know, he was like consoling me. No, no. And I said, well, I, I just, I want to tell you that I'm really sorry. And he went, no, okay, okay. You know, and he was sort of embarrassed about all this. Well, one of my other friends, when I told the story, she said, he didn't say he was sorry back. <laughs> so weren't you furious? He didn't say he was sorry back. Mm-hmm. And and I sat there and I said, honestly, no, right. I wasn't furious at all. In fact, my feeling forgiven by him sort of made the whole thing forgiven. It made it kind of put that color over all of it. And, it, and it's because in a real conversation, you don't listen for the disagreement. You listen for the common ground. Right. And and we do have common grounds. And if nothing else, we have a common ground in our humanity. And I mean, do I get frightened? Oh, gosh, yes. Right. Well, did I go through that same period frightened, maybe just of different enemies? Yeah. You know, right. so I don't know. But, it, but I do think it drives home that even in your most personal relationships, if you can take a a stance of, I want to hear your story. Again, that's why it's narrative. Right. And I want to hear it in your words and I want to hear it with your feelings and I want to hear it with your thinking. Um, and as much as I can, I'm going to offer you my story. Right. In the same honesty. Right. I think it's so fascinating right, your friend's response. Like, weren't you upset that he didn't, apologize back. Like, I think that's some sort of an important thing. Cause I think people think, think that I've had people ask me that, well, did they say they were sorry? <laughs> you know, an apology in my, in my sense of things, an apology is authentic when it's offered with no expectation of getting one back. Yeah. Right. Like, I, if I'm, if I'm just saying it to prompt the other person to say it, 
then I'm still holding on in some way. I just right? thought that hard, but that's true. Yeah. You know, and, and, and part of what I think I discovered through the narrative conversation is that it is a story. First of all, that we, we are storytellers, all of us. And a story's truth is told in the many ways the story gets told, right? So it's not always going to be told the same way. And there's not always going to be the same wisdom or truth from it based on how I tell it, what I remember from it, the questions that somebody else poses to me about it. And and holding on to the idea that we are storytellers and that conversation really is an opportunity for us to tell our story can lighten it a bit, right? Because if I can remember that it's a story, then I don't necessarily have to argue about the truth of it, right? Because it's somebody's story and they're playing a character in it and I'm playing a character in it, you know? And uh, I think that that could go a long way to cultivating, you know, an arena where there is really deep and meaningful conversation. Oh, I do too. I do too. Absolutely. And and that's an arena is, you know, not an arena where we're battling an arena, like you said, where there's this wonderful Greek drama in front and we're all sharing the experience together. (laughs) So it's still an arena, but a different different kind of arena. Um, I, I also, I, for some reason, the word converse, and I have not done the etymology on this, so this mm. is all strictly mm. opinion, but um, I, you, one of the things I most admire is someone who can write poetry. Mm. She said, looking at a poet, but um, <laughs> I, I honestly, I, I, what I, to me, poetry is the epitome of the fruitful use of words, and I love mm. I love all words. Um, I do too. I, I love reading. And, but poetry, boy, poets are right up there with me. And um, when you think of the, the, the word verse mm-hmm. in conversation, it, it would be sort of lovely to think what we're doing is writing a poem together. That, oh. that what we are doing is, is coming up together with an image of words that will breathe and live on its own like a poem does right oh i love that many interpretations right so it may be yeah i don't know but and i like i said i haven't done the etymology on it so that's just my gut reaction but i love the word conversation because that is to to verse together Um, yeah and of course you have narrative conversation you have two of my favorite things in story and verse so i love that so let's let's talk about you know fear. I think is one of the things that sort of can restrict oh, meaningful yeah. conversation. What are some other things? I mean, I think judgment. We touched on that a bit. Judgment, absolutely. Um, there's well, it, it's that right and wrong that you were talking about, and yeah. um, and I, you know the sad thing is, and, and please understand, I'm married to a teacher. I admire teachers. I'm not saying anything but i do think in the traditional western educational system we're taught that there are right answers and wrong answers 
And of course, if you're saying, well, no, that's, I was going to give an example, but it's not a good example. You say two plus two is four. That's true only in a particular form of mathematics. But, you know, when you're two or two, when you're in second grade, if you're two and you're doing it, you're really remarkable. But if you're in second grade right. um, and you're doing multiplication table, well, there is really only one right answer. I get that. Um, but in life, that's not true. Right. There are many, many. That, that's actually why I love reading good poetry or good fiction. Because uh, it points that out to you. Right. More than one right answer in the world. Um, so I do think I do think that whole judgment of right and wrong is is dangerous. I think arrogance is dangerous. Yeah, um, that's probably a close cousin to fear. Yeah, I think so too. I think most people who are deeply arrogant are terribly afraid of uh, revealing who they are. Right. They think who they are is weak, and they need to be strong. Right. They need to be the the best in the room and that kind of stuff. Um, I think, <laughs> I think hierarchies yeah. are, um, a real problem. You probably remember this, Mary, we used to have conversations because what we were doing at the Pulley Center was often working with pastors and we would always encourage them to form their own peer groups after they were done with the training. And how many times would someone say, I have to be careful who I put in my peer group? Because that person might be my next next district superintendent, right? Or that person, you know, if we were dealing with another group, that group next person might be my next bishop. Um, right. I can't, I can't reveal those things that I struggle with with someone who's going to be over me. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think hierarchies are real. If we think someone has more power, or indeed does have some sort of uh, punitive power over us. They can take away our job. They can take away our salary. Um, that is an inhibitor to a real conversation. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, I think about all the years that we, both of us worked in, in the church setting and church settings and, you know, not only hierarchy, but in that setting, you know, you were trained to hand over to someone else our, you know, expertise, right? To hand over to to get, you know, the pre the priest is the mediator or the final say. I was recalling in a story the other day that, you know, I went to a Catholic grade school and high school, and the woman who was the principal at the grade school still had to go to the priest. The priest still had the final word, even though she was the one who was trained in education. She was trained in administration. She was the one running the day in and the day out of the school. And yet she still had to go to him at times for the final say. And that kind of modeling and training has a major impact when, as a child, as you're brought up in that kind of system and, and you're, in many ways trained not to trust oneself. Oh, yeah. And I think that, that that in itself can be inhibitive, right? Like how many people have grown up in these systems where we weren't, weren't really encouraged to think for ourselves? You know, I was trained not to question. You don't question authority. 
And, you know, that stymied my own development in many ways and my own ability to trust my myself, my senses, my body, you know, all those things. And I think, you know, how many people have grown up in, in systems like that, not just in in the church. But I mean, yeah, it could be it could be a family, it could be whatever, you know. Yeah. Uh, um, certainly racial cultural systems. Right. Um, where we're told the other is the enemy, the other is to be fearful or we are better than the other right and you know you, you think about what humanity has done for millennia when they're afraid what do we do we yeah. kill each other right. you know and it's like like we have to get down to the bottom of that to the basis of that because you know there's physical killing but there's also a way of you know truly squashing somebody in conversation or in public or in, you know, in relationship. And it requires a willingness, I think, to, to look within and kind of excavate those areas of our lives where we are fearful, where we hold beliefs that maybe we haven't questioned. Yeah. You know, you were, go ahead. No, I was going to say, that's a big one. You have to be able to question. I mentioned that the whole narrative conversation is really built on a question. But if you can't question yourself, that's that's scary. That's supreme arrogance. Right. So let's talk a little bit about that. Like we both worked in settings where, you know, belief was sort of the apex of what brought people together. It was sort of this, you know, and yet in some ways we're taught not to question beliefs or especially someone else's beliefs. Yes. You know, how do we, how do we traverse that? How do we, I was, I was sitting here thinking to myself, yes, I was told not to question other people's beliefs because they were simply wrong. Um, you know, if you weren't Roman Catholic, I'm sorry, you know, <laughs> the boat, uh, yeah. which of course infuriated me even as a child, because my dad wasn't Catholic. So I, I always tell people I had sort of an edge up over most of my friends who grew up in that same pre Vatican II church that I grew up in because I knew I knew my father wasn't evil. I, and so I, I mean, he had issues, don't get me wrong, but he wasn't evil. And I, and I knew he wasn't going to hell just because he had been raised Lutheran. That was a ridiculous idea to me. Right. <laughs> so, um, so even as a child, but, but yeah, we weren't allowed to question. We weren't. Um, and then add God to that mix and you're really in trouble. I mean, think about that, right? Not only not only could the pastor be mad at you, but then you could go to hell because the pastor was mad at you. <laughs> so it was like you you know, God is the God is the ultimate judge, right? And um, and I know uh, you know, and you're going to hear from people maybe that you know God is justice. What about God's justice? And I think you know, <laughs> justice is not revenge, right? It, and justice is not punishment. Right. Those are separate issues. Justice is correcting the wrong. That's justice. Justice and, is appropriate action. Yes. Yes. So, so yeah, no, I, I don't. I, I, you know, if you've ever read Rob Bell's. Um, oh, no, I can't remember the name of the book, but it's the one where he says there is no hell. And the poor guy paid 
up the wazoo for that position. But, um, but I agree with them. There's no hell. I don't know what's out there, but I can't, I can't imagine a God who hates so much that you could never achieve fulfillment, enlightenment, peace, peace, whatever we want to say. Yeah. Do you think that a truly inquiring mind, so we've sort of talked about some of those characteristics, humility, mm-hmm. right? Uh, openness, having an open heart, having mm-hmm. a sense of being able to really listen for understanding. Can an inquiring mind then, somebody who's truly curious, can that mind be triggered? You know, we're in this culture where, you know, for God's sakes, don't trigger somebody. You know, don't say don't say the word that might trigger someone. It might tr- trigger their trauma. Can a truly inquiring mind be triggered? That's a good question. Um, I have I have a lot of problem with jargon, huh. and we have a lot of that going around right now. Can- cancel culture um, triggered. It's like it it, it began. It begins okay, and then it turns into a, a political statement. I guess yeah. would be the way I'd say it. And you're like, why? You like masking? Why did masking become political? Well, we can we can answer that, but I'm not going to. But <laughs> <laughs> or we can play with an answer for that, but I'm not going to. We. Right. Um, so I I guess I'd be, I guess the word triggered stops me from being really clear in an answer, um, but. I think sure. If if triggered means, um, can it bring a gut response from us that maybe isn't our best response? Mm. Then I would say sure, because that's good. None of us are perfect, and and so there's going to be a wait. How can you say that kind of response? And and I would encourage people rather than just say no, I'm not going to be triggered, but to step back and examine. Totally. I, I, yeah. Why did that trigger me? Because sometimes a gut reaction that says, no, that's unacceptable is a good gut reaction. Agreed. Uh, you know, there is, there is language that I never allowed my children to use. Right. And, you know, for them, the F word wasn't the F word. The F word was, you know, a, a slang for a gay man. That was the F word I wouldn't let them use. So, okay. Um, so they grew up knowing that there were triggers for me that if, right. they came, if it came out of their mouth, I went, hey, you know. Um, so sometimes it's appropriate, but other times it's just, wow, that hit something in a memory, that hit something in my past, that that touched my own anxiety and fear. Yeah, I think I, I agree with that. Like, because I think the body knows the body is going to have reactions in, in conversation, you know, in conversation and yet it can be a doorway to further self-knowledge. Yes. If we, if we're willing to go in and be like, what, what's going on with me, you know, and it can be a check, just like you said, like there are gut reactions that are entirely appropriate Mm -hmm. in conversation. And, and it's interesting because actually one of the most satisfying conversations I had was with a friend that I had, um, some very strong disagreements with politically and uh, culturally, I guess I would say. And um, 
I found that when I stopped saying things to him like, well, what about this? What about that? You know, he'd bring up a point, what about then I'd go, what about this? When I started saying, saying things to him like, it sounds like that really concerns you. How come? Mm. Or, wow, that's a very strong reaction you just had to that. Do you have any idea why it's so strong? What, what's behind that? Um, it's, it's like what I told you earlier. It's like looking behind the words to try to get to the emotion. Yeah. Behind it. The words are just the doorway. Right. The emotion behind it. Um, for years, I told people that if I can get a student to say to me, I'm bored, I can get in. I mean, that's like a great thing when a student says to me, oh, this is boring. It's like, that's my key in. How so? How so? How so? Right. Um, so it's always a delight when a young person says to me, oh, this is boring. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tell me. Or what wouldn't be boring? Right. What would you prefer to have? Not like, what would you prefer to have? But, <laughs> but we don't. <laughs> right. Like, I don't remember, I don't know if you remember this, but I think you were, I think you were in the class when I think it was one of the ones you and I taught. Um, but somebody's first question, they, uh, somebody shared their story and, and one of the members who, of the students that were learning it said his first question was, did you think it was smart to do that? And, <laughs> we both had to say, uh, and not not really a question. Not really. A question. <laughs> Clearly, your your thinking it wasn't smart is coming through. That sort of got a built-in answer. Don't ask any questions with built-in answers. Um, yes or no questions generally are to be avoided. But but did you think it was smart? I just I remember wanting to laugh. That's precious. And, you know, I think there's a, actually, I think there's a lot of that, you know, because we, because people are so defensive, it comes from this kind of, well, certainly it's obvious you can see what I see, you know what I mean? And it's like, well, I, no, <laughs> like, no, I can't, you know, I have a different perspective. One of the blessings about um, stepping away from hierarchies at, at my age and being 67 years old. One of my blessings of that is uh, I feel sometimes like I was watching a children's puppet show anyway. Mm. Um, so it's sort of, and I, that, that sounded terribly smug and superior, and indeed I am, but um, no, no, <laughs> but it, there are times now when I, when I read things, especially from my own tradition, and, and, I, and I read them now from a distance mm -hmm. that I go, huh, it doesn't threaten me. Sometimes it saddens me. Yeah. But a lot of times I think I want to say to them, but why do you believe that? Why? You know, I know I used to believe it and I keep asking myself, why did I believe it? But why do you? Right. Um, I know I, I have some friends who are very concerned because of the transition I've been making mm. in um, my spiritual life. Um, but I really think what I've done is not dropped anything, but broadened it. Right. So the story I told you earlier about my brother and I, that to me is the sacrament of reconciliation. Oh, absolutely. You know? Um, absolutely. 
you know, or or sitting at the bedside of, of a friend and holding her hand is the sacrament of anointing. It, it, it's like, right. I, I don't categorize this. My categories aren't as small. Right. So, um, and I think some of that is, is the more stories you hear, the more stories you share, the more you realize that there is so much that is sacred out there. Yeah. And it's not called that. It's not identified as that. It's, but it's there. Absolutely. I mean, in many ways, it's like a way to touch into the mystery that the tradition was pointing at the whole time, but maybe narrowed by their own, you know, when you institutionalize something, you, you box it in, you want something concrete. And I think in my own life, I, I would say a similar thing that, that, you know, I, I moved out of Catholicism. I've moved out of Christianity and it's not that I, uh, I don't have any negative feelings about those, the, right. those experiences, you know, they were formational. Um, but I feel like sort of rings of a tree that I just continue to grow wider, that those stories remain, that history remains, it's foundational to, to my ability to grow, but I'm, I'm growing wider and wider and I can see that they don't negate each other. Exactly. You know, that they, they don't have to be in agreement, but they also don't have to negate each other. They don't not, not one has to be right. They can have value in and of themselves, those experiences, you know. And and I think that's what, and we, and we need that desperately. We need that broadening. We need it. Um, I will never understand the experience of being a young black man in America and knowing that, you know, one out of 10 will die, you know, violently. And I, I think to myself, man, if we had one out of 10 with this pandemic, pandemic, we would have been, everybody would have been pulling out every stop in the world, right? Right. But, uh, so I don't know that. I don't know that experience. I don't know what it feels like. Right. But I can, but I can read the stories of young men who have shared those stories. It doesn't make me have their experience, but it certainly opens my eyes to the stupid things that I do and to the things I need to change. Right. When I watched Dear White People years ago, Mm -hmm. I was still working at the law school then, and there was a student there who just had all these beautiful waves put in her hair and braids and and you know what my first reaction had been the day she showed up? I put my hand on it and went, oh, wow. So now I'm watching Dear White People. And this young African-American girl saying, I hate that white people touch my hair. So the next day right. I, went up, I went up to her and said, you know, I'm an ass. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, why right. did I feel I had every right to do that to you? I am so sorry. You know, I'm yeah. going to tell you that I was just curious and that was stupid and you know but I had no right to treat you like a rag doll like oh what's that feel right <laughs> I wouldn't have done it to a girl who t- changed her hair to blonde right a white right. girl in blonde, right. I would walk up to her and say oh let me see that right so so I think we need to hear the other stories so we can start acting on them 
you know, and I think you're onto something too, you know, um, one of my, uh, favorite authors is Lawrence Kushner, not, not Harold Kushner, but Lawrence Kushner. And he says actually that we need to get away from the whole, I'm okay. You're okay. And just be like, I'm an ass. You're an ass. <laughs> like if we just, if we just assume that we are going to make mistakes with each other, you know, and allow for that, you know, and that's one of the things that troubles me about these times is that, that we are, we get the message that, you know, just white people, you go read your books, you go, that's how you, that's how you awaken, you know, and as a, as a lesbian, I can tell you that's not how hearts get changed. It might be how minds get changed, but it's not often how hearts get changed. And, and if I would have given my dad a book 30 years ago and said, Hey dad, before you can have a conversation with me about me being gay, you got to go read this book. It would not have happened. And he would have not been in my life, but we had, I had to make room in my heart to have conversation with him and to allow the ignorant questions again and again and again. And it, is it tiresome? Absolutely. It's tiresome. And so then you take a break and then you come back because you know that that's how heart change hearts change. And you have to come out again and again and again and again, and you got to tell the story again and again and again. And, and part of what I think that's part of what we need today is to be able to have places where we can be with each other and, you know, in diverse groups and be able to, to have the conversations where, where what has been labeled inappropriate questions are allowed, where we're actually allowed to have them. And then now I get it under, have a greater understanding about why it's, ignorant, <laughs> you know, but you know, I, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to traverse because people are so, you know, ready to be offended. And I think we've got to really drop that. We've got, we've got to learn how to drop, drop that and just allow hearts to be shared. Uh, but, and, and yet, and I'm not, I'm not totally disagreeing with you when I say this, but I do think the representation we're seeing in movies now and the representation in literature and plays and stuff does help. Sure. We have to, we still have to move. We still have to make ourselves move. Absolutely. Um, but it's I, a both and, right? It's always a both yeah. and. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's, I mean, I, I agree with you handing someone a book and saying, here, read this and then you'll understand me would be a little odd, but um, although I'm tempted to do that with Prince of Tides, because I <laughs> just because I think Prince of Tides is the best book I had ever read, James Carroll, on growing up in an alcoholic household. I mean, okay. just just an amazing book. But it it's only it only works if it's going to lead to the conversation. Yes, you have to do it thinking the next step is we're going to converse. I um, love that. Uh, that's great. Yes. And my husband is actually in a group right now that's talking very seriously about diversity and they're doing things like articles and TED talks. And, but after they share the experience of it, then they come together and talk. Right. I mean, I think that's the key. That is the key. The key is that you have the shared experience and then you, you sit down together and talk. Yeah. Um, and that's, 
And I know, you know, my dear introverted Mary, I know you have very good extrovert skills, but I know that conversation drains you more than it drains me, for example. You know, I'll get off this hour Zoom and I'll be like, because my energy has actually been building during it. You know, you'll get up and say, Amanda, I'm going to go lie down now. Right, I'll be done for today. I, yeah, right. Um, so I do, I mean, so I get that it costs us different things to have the conversation, mm -hmm. but, but the conversations are important. Yeah. So let's just touch, you know, we're not obviously going to do justice to this by any means, but, you know, the Myers-Briggs type indicator is... I have found a lot of value in it just for understanding myself, right? Just for understanding myself, my tendencies, the way, you know, I bring myself to life. Um, what would you, what would you say about it to people? Is it something you would encourage people to access on their own? Is it something that you think ha has it held, you know, over time? Because, you know. Yeah, I, I honestly, um, I love the Myers-Briggs because it's an incredibly positive experience. Mm. So you find out nothing negative about yourself, really. I mean, yeah, there are growing areas in your life, maybe, but, but every type is good. Every personality type is good. Every preference is good. Every preference is needed, actually, right. in, a, in our world. So I like that about it. But I would encourage people anytime any there's a probably a thousand personality tests out there anytime you can find out something about yourself that you might not have known before is worth doing period i think right now with the myers-briggs to me the other message and you mentioned this in your very kind intro um is it is about what you learn about yourself but it's also what you learn about other people yeah and if I were to say the most valuable thing about the Myers-Briggs is you learn that other people are not you. <laughs> right. I mean, as simple as that is, you learn that, oh, not everybody thinks that way. Not everybody takes in information that way. Not everybody makes decisions that way. Not everybody, you know, has to meet the deadline or sees the life as linear. So, um, so I, I'd say that's, that's the... Uh, you know, I would say I have a very distinct memory of being actually in your class at the Poli Center. And probably we were talking about Myers-Briggs at that time. And I don't remember what happened. I don't remember what I didn't say, but you were, you challenged me and you were like, yeah, but you didn't say that. Yeah. And I was like, I actually do remember this. in my mind. It was, it was a, it was a situation. And I think it's partly because I am an introvert and I didn't really realize that other people didn't think like me that I had to actually say it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember the actual thing that wasn't said. I admit that, but, but I do remember the shock on your face when, when, because, you know, because you had intuited it and I it right. was doing one of those sections where we say, well, what do you think the issue is for this person? Because we would debrief after each conversation. And I, I said, well, none of you identified this. And again, I don't remember the word, you know, let's say insecurity or something. And you looked and said, well, but I knew that. And I said, well, yeah, but you didn't say. <laughs> and then I had to think about it. Like, oh. no, 
but your face was like, well, <laughs> <laughs> like isn't everybody in here with me? Yeah, like, well, didn't everybody pick that? <laughs> you know, I mean, we all knew that, right? I, you know, you could look around the room, but well, no, I didn't know it. But, um, but anyway, it was it was it was a fun moment because I don't think up until that point you and I had even disagreed on anything, right? Know, you know. So. And it was startling to me. I was like, I mean, I truly had to think about it the, probably the rest of the week. I was like, wow, how much don't I say yeah. that I think is already just out there that we're all agreeing on, yeah. you know, and uh, it was good. It was a good wake up for me. It's been helpful in my marriage. <laughs> we can't assume. We love to assume. Yeah. But we can't. It really does indeed make an ass out of you and me. That is absolutely. <laughs> and. You can't do that. You can't do that. You have to ask the question. Um, another one of my dear friends is, and she is intuitive. She's incredibly emotionally sensitive. She generally reads people perfectly, but not always. Nobody does it always. And, and so she said something to me like, well, I don't know why I have to ask questions. I'm, I'm an intuitive. And I said, <laughs> because you're not perfect. Right. I, mean, I don't care how perfect and intuitive you think you are. Right. You, nobody's perfect. Right. And okay. frankly, you know, that's a big, that's an arrogant thing to say, like, yeah. because how are you, there's an assumption there that I know you better than you know yourself yeah. or that I see something in you that I need no explanation about, you know? Right. And uh, again, that can be something that really is inhibiting in for authentic exchange, because now I, you know, you're sitting there with your intuition, which may be correct, but you know, it's tied to a larger story for sure. And oh. if you, if you intuit it and don't ask about it, you, you haven't allowed that story to come out. You're right. That's yeah. a very good insight, Mary. It might be tied to a larger story. Yeah. yeah. That's the reason to ask. Yeah. Even if you're hundred percent right, that's the reason. That's good. I'm going to use that. you know I think um one of the 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 things that we touch on in this is that and and you sort of talked talked about it how you know realizing that sacredness is you know there is sacredness and we don't frankly need a mediator for it that we experience those sacred moments in our own lives if we're awake to them if we're open to them um which to me touches on on the mystery right touches on the the mystery of how we're connected on the mystery that there is such diversity in creation there is such diversity in people and in humanity and um and to me that's one of the most enjoyable beautiful, curious things about being alive is that we are so embedded in mystery and there's so much mystery in the universe. I mean, there's so many questions still unanswered. And so as we, you know, bring our conversation to a close today, I think, I think we may have more of these conversations. Um, You know, I wonder of all the mysteries in the universe, Mary, Mm -hmm. What mystery do you want the answer to? I think I want the answer to the mystery of death. 
Mm. And it, it may be because I'm 67 years old and I've gone through a year now where a lot of people have died um, of varying relationships to me, but just seems like a lot of death. Right. And um, yeah, I just, I'm, it's not like I'm thinking, oh, I want to go to heaven and get my harp. Um, but I, I, I have a hard time accepting that there is all this divine and good and sacred and love and all those wonderful things that we all have in us and that they disappear. Right. Um, so I, I think that's probably the biggest mystery is that I wish I knew where to put all that. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's, I think there's a lot of us who, who want to know that, <laughs> that mystery, right? The, like, what is it? What is it about? Is it just, is the finality of it? Is it final? Yeah. yeah. Is it final? Yeah. So, I mean, it's obviously understanding it ain't going to change a damn thing. <laughs> I mean, still right. like but, <laughs> and I wouldn't want to be eternal. You know, people have asked those, those kind of questions. I'm not a, I would hate to be like around and watch everybody around me not make it that kind of stuff but um but yeah i don't well i'll stay with that because it's a mystery it is absolutely a mystery more about it i wouldn't call it a mystery (laughs) right that's one of the things i love about it awesome well listen thank you so much for being my guest today this has been a great conversation and and truly i think you know i'd love to have more of these with you it's just so fun and delightful and, and interesting. So thank you. And we don't need a camera either. I think. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I am ready to be sitting outside and seeing people in 3D. I would like to say, I would like to say to your viewers that yes, I am only a semi-serious poker player because I stink at it. <laughs> if I was better at it, I'd be a serious poker player. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. But I have no poker face. Every all, all, all of you tell me I have tells. If I bet, if I bet like higher than you guys expect, they all you all pull out. Now Mary's got some. <laughs> it's true. I mean, I'm the same. I'm no. I'm not a. I have no poker face. That's for sure. But I do miss playing. So I do too. We got to get that back. Look forward to that. That. Okay. Well, you take care. Give my love to Amanda too. I will give our love to Wayne. I love you, Mary. All of you out there. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everybody. I look forward to meeting you right back here at the watering hole. And as Mary Oliver said, go easy, be filled with light, and shine.